Hi, welcome to another episode of Up To. Eight years ago, Up To started as a live event series showcasing leaders who are as humble as they are successful. The humility piece is extremely important as we identify leaders who can inspire others. We try to focus our interviews on the non-business aspects of their lives, and in doing so, have found there is a real thirst to explore their hearts and minds in atypical ways. Today's guest is Bernie Marino. We'll start with Bernie telling us about the conference he organizes called Blockland that is centered around blockchain technology, and later he'll talk about his newest company that deals with the way cars are titled using that very technology. But before that, we'll hear about the development of his car dealership business and the philosophy that drove its success. Bernie will talk about defining your business and how that definition can affect operation in dramatic fashion. We'll also learn about how he led his business to some of its greatest successes during an economic downturn. He'll also be talking about his family's immigration to the U.S. when he was a child and how his parents made the decision to humble themselves in order to reinvent themselves. He'll let us in on what he thinks is the future of the car industry, specifically regarding autonomous vehicles. And we'll hear some of his life philosophies, including the importance of persistence. You're listening to the Up To Podcast. We're glad you're with us. We'll be right back. During the first season of the Up To podcast, I had several companies and entrepreneurs approach me about potential partnerships, but I'm really selective before choosing to do something like that. One choice we did make happily is to partner with Vivid Front, a full service digital marketing and website design agency based in Cleveland that works with both local and national brands. They've built their entire client base on referrals and they've won a lot of awards, including the 2019 Inc. Magazine Top 5,000 Fastest Growing Companies, North Coast's Top Places to Work, and several others. They're known for their talent. They're known for their creativity. They're known for their culture, a firm I liked before we agreed to partner together for the show. Check out vividfront.com, or you can email me, and I'll introduce you to their dynamic leader, Andrew Spott. Welcome back to the Up To Podcast, your host, Adam Kaufman. Our guest today was born in Colombia, and his family immigrated to the United States around the time he was beginning elementary school. At a young age, he demonstrated a keen interest in automobiles, and he got his first internship with General Motors, and soon after that, a job with Saturn. After learning the trade for several years, he had the opportunity to purchase an underperforming Mercedes-Benz dealership around 20 years ago. Saying that he turned that dealership around would be an understatement. Bernie's Benz operation became one of the most successful and most awarded in the United States, and he expanded to more than 15 dealerships representing 30 car brands. And something I noticed firsthand on countless occasions, this leader was able to build his successful business while earning the respect and what seemed like a genuine friendship with his employees. All of the smiling in his dealerships made evident the enviable culture our guest today created. During this supercharged growth phase of his career, this husband of one and father of four also found time to donate significant energy and money to charities dear to him. He has served on several boards of large institutions like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Cleveland Clinic, as board chairman of a major public university, and also a community college foundation board. A few years ago, Today's guest decided to make a significant pivot in his career, moving away from an almost unimaginable level of success in the auto industry to focus most of his time on technology, specifically the nascent blockchain industry. In fact, 
less than 24 hours ago, our guest concluded his chairmanship of a three-day international blockchain conference, having convened 1,500 technologists, entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders at the second annual Blockland Conference. Our guest is an investor in real estate and in startups, and he's also become an influence in politics and policy, backing candidates he believes in, and pursuing public policy he thinks will benefit the masses and stimulate economic development. A real force in the community, this leader is diplomatic, but not afraid to be candid and to advocate for his beliefs. And we love authenticity here at UpTo. I've been fortunate to enjoy a friendship with today's guest for nearly 15 years, and we're grateful he's able to spend some of his valuable time with us today. Bernie Marino, welcome to the Up To podcast. Thank you for having me. Look forward to uh, our discussion. What have you been up to? <laughs> I've been up to a lot. Uh, certainly the last three days, uh, it was great having this conference here. This technology is really going to uh, change our future, and for us as a community to be at the leading edge of that is really exciting. How do you measure the success of a conference? I've chaired a conference before, and it's not exactly like a business where you're pumping out widgets. Like, How do you measure a successful conference? Yeah, certainly the way we do. Uh, I, this is only the second conference I've ever organized, so but don't have a big track record there. But uh, last year we had 1,500 people. This year we had 1,500 people. So we didn't see drop-off. I think that's number one. It's December in Northeast Ohio. So it's not exactly the most compelling time to come here. Yet not we really had a, lot a destination of conference. It's not, it's not where you say uh, you're in Miami and it's really sunny. You go, let me go somewhere really cold in December. That's why I missed your conference. I was at Art Basel last week. See, there you go. You were buying $125,000 banana <laughs> right. duct tape. Exactly. Uh, so, but back to your question, I think the, the answer is also the quality of the speakers. We had Thomas Kurian, who was the CEO of Google Cloud. We had Simon uh, Mulcahy, who is the uh, CIO and executive VP at Salesforce, probably number two guy in that company. We had Don Tapscott, who is the founder of the Blockchain Research Institute, speak. Uh, we had Bob Wolpert, who heads up a company called Golden State Foods, which nobody's heard of probably, but everybody's used. Uh, they supply 125,000 restaurants all over the world. And he's a chairman of the Food Trust with a small little company called Walmart, Kroger, IBM, Nestle. And he's a chair of that. And they're using blockchain to track food for food safety and food waste reasons. So he talked to us about that. And then on Monday, we were kicked off by a guy named Jeremy Goodshay, who uh, runs a website and organization called Trend Hunter, and really talked about the importance of understanding where the future's going to be so that you don't get left behind. So the food trust, I hadn't heard of that. So those huge corporations created this food trust? Correct. And can you explain again what the trust is sure. setting so, out to do? So do you remember the romaine lettuce problem? Oh, yes. So what happened was there was some romaine lettuce that was tainted, but they didn't know where it came from. So the answer became throw away all romaine lettuce, and then <laughs> which was insanely wasteful. Millions and millions of pounds of romaine lettuce got thrown away. What they did by using blockchain technology, which is basically an immutable ledger that keeps track of this, what they can do in the future, if there's something like this, they can know the exact date and farm that the problem occurred so that they isolate that issue as opposed to having to take the kind of action it took before. But also around food waste, which is how do they track the amount of food uh, being discarded to minimize the amount of waste in the system. So that's why these big companies all got together to do that. We're going to spend more time on blockchain in a bit, but let's go back in time a little bit to the car business, your past career. You started at such a young age and then you brought in lots of different brands, different price point. Was your thinking to have cars for each type of shopper or how did you end up having everything from GMC to 
to Aston Martin and so many other brands in between? Yeah, so we started with Mercedes-Benz as our core, and then we grew the luxury business really well. But we wanted to broaden the volume, and so we brought in Nissan, uh, Kia, Volkswagen, Buick, GMC, Acura, Mini. Uh, that was really to help us scale so that we'd be a larger company and not just be a niche in the luxury world. That was basically a growth strategy that, that, that we followed. And at the peak, how many team members were under your employee through all those different dealerships? About a thousand. That's amazing. And I'm not just saying this to patronize you because you're our guest today, but the happiness factor inside your locations was just so palpable. I don't know what the mission statement of the company was, but I feel like it was happiness and excellence. <laughs> That's it. Well, we had a vision statement. I can tell you what it is. But uh, the more important part when it comes to our team members, we had 10 commandments. So I grew up Catholic and went to Catholic school and we got pounded in the 10 commandments. And uh, so I looked at the 10 commandments since everybody kind of knows what they are. Uh, they're relatively negative, right? They're not exactly the most uplifting 10 commandments in the world. So we created 10 fun commandments okay. uh, ten, uh, that really were the commandments that every team member in the company didn't need to uh, look very far to understand what, what the expectations were. So the 10 commandments were something that everybody physically carried on them. They were on our walls. Uh, it was something that we talked about literally every single day. And commandment number one is thou shalt have fun. So my observation about happiness, I guess it wasn't by chance. It seems like that was something you guys focused on. Correct. Yeah, it's literally the first commandment. It's the most important one. I don't want to put you on the spot and have you regurgitate all of them, but maybe we'll add them on our website later if, if that's okay with you. Sure, I think people would be interested. Yeah, absolutely. It's like it's like the Bible's Ten Commandments. You remember the first one, right? Thou shalt not kill. <laughs> the rest of them get fuzzy after that, but everybody knows killing bad. So in our case, it was fun first because, you know, let's be honest, you're going to be at work more than not. You're going to be at work eight, nine, 10 hours a day. You sleep about eight. So that leaves six hours that you're not working, 10 hours that you are. You really not want to have fun uh, most of your life? That's crazy. I love the philosophy. Didn't you bring like rare coffee in as well? I remember when you opened that espresso bar, but it wasn't just coffee. It was like some rare Colombian coffee. Yeah, the greatest coffee in the world. <laughs> of <laughs> course. Certainly the most expensive coffee in the world. So that's the excellence piece of my observation, happiness and excellence. You had to have the best coffee. Right. That's one of the uh, commandments is uh, thou shalt pay attention to details because the way we viewed it when we were in a luxury car business, luxury, what does it mean to have a luxury experience, right? We talk about that all the time. We recognize it when we see it, but how do you define it? So what we did is we defined it and we defined it as a million details done perfectly. And so the coffee isn't just about serving coffee. Anybody can serve coffee. Sure. But do we serve the best coffee in the world in the best possible way? So we don't have paper. We had uh, you know, silverware, we had dishes the right way. Mm -hmm. And um, this coffee's, you know, we've had many clients that said, oh my God, this is the greatest coffee I've ever tried. And then they go on the website to buy it and they have sticker shock. It's $135 a pound. Wow. I didn't realize that. Yeah. How did you develop this service excellence standard? Is that something you were born with or were there other leaders that you admired that you wanted to emulate? Or where do you think all that came from? Well, it's how you define your business. If you're going to be in the luxury business, we, we, we really spent a lot of time understanding what that was. What does it really mean? And, you know, what does it mean to deliver a luxury experience? And it's rare. It's not something that a lot of people get to experience. Alternatively, we could have competed just on price. And when you compete just on price, you're a commodity. So we, we, we were certainly very aggressive with pricing. That's, that's, that's for sure. But we had to add the element of the luxury experience so mm -hmm. that we gave our clients less reason to leave us and more reasons to come to us. And that's an answer to why did you bring in excellent coffee? But 
what I'm wondering is how did you even learn to do that? Because other luxury car dealerships didn't bring in $130 a pound coffee. So do you think this just came naturally to you? A lot of things that we're good at, we just think, oh, I just brought in coffee because that's what we should do at a luxury car brand. But that isn't natural thinking for everyone. I really want to get inside maybe your head or sure. your training a little bit, yeah, your heart. Sure. sure. Well, like every other human in the, in the world, we have two parents. And uh, so I had on one side my mother uh, that uh, taught us to be fearless. Whatever we're going to do, we, we do Go it. Go for it. Go for it. And then on my dad, uh, it was to be excellent at whatever it is that you do. So if you're going to do anything, whether you're a shoe shiner, just be the best shoe shiner in the world. And so you take both those things and you end up with a delusional optimist, right? <laughs> so, delusional optimist. That could be the title of the show, The Delusional Optimist. <laughs> exactly. So when it comes to luxury, you have to, def- and I think this is the lesson that, that uh, you know, and I read a lot. I read a lot about people that, uh, that succeed, whether it's Steve Jobs or even Mark Zuckerberg, Mark Randolph, who founded Netflix. So you read and you, and you try to find common threads. And one of the things that I've concluded, at least for myself, is that it, it all hinges on how you define your business. When I was in the retail automotive business, it wasn't that I, my business was selling cars. That, that's, a, that's a very narrow way to look at that business. I looked at it as we delivered fantasies. We made dreams come true. So it's experience rather than transactional the, thinking. The car, the car was the incidental part that went along with it. So my competition wasn't the dealer down the street. My competition was the Ritz-Carlton, the Mandarin Oriental, Federal Express, Amazon, who could deliver an experience like that. I love that. Something, kind of the guiding force for us was we wanted to deliver an experience that made clients go, hmm, that was the goal. Where it was just like, for example, the coffee bar. It's like, hmm, that's interesting. It, it, because again, your alternative is to define your business very narrowly and say, we're in, we're, my job is to sell this piece of metal to that client and I'm going to do it as cheaply as possible. And then you race to the bottom with your competitors. It wasn't an overnight success, though. You've shared with me before, 2008, 2009, probably. It was uh, like a lot of people in America. There are some tough times with business owners. How did you get through that? Maybe on the um, you know financial side, did you have to lay off any employees? Well, let me give you a little bit of background first to answer that question. So when I moved to, when I moved to uh, Cleveland in 2005, to buy this dealership. I did it with every single solitary dollar that I'd ever seen, heard of, viewed in my entire life. You were being uh, fearless. This like was your fearless. This yeah. was this was plan B was to uh, be a really great drive through operator at McDonald's <laughs> okay. because that was going to be flat backup broke. Plan. Yeah. That was the backup broke because this was every chip, every chip. It wasn't a lot of chips. It was every single one. So that's number one. That was 2005. Then uh, uh, of course, what do you do when you're all in? You then can, can start to expand. I did it with no partners, no uh, no equity partners, only with debt. Uh, bought another dealership in 2006, bought another dealership in 2007. So every cent that we were making was plowing back into the business. Maybe I'd say every, for every dollar we made, we plowed a dollar twenty-five into wow. growth. Leveraging so we were, even more leveraging the more you more. sold. Exactly. And then 2008, 2009 came. And I guess I would answer your question this way. Uh, that's like asking somebody who went to Vietnam uh, whether there was a, you know, a, a disturbance in the neighborhood that they visited. Uh, it was absolute uh, bloodshed and horror. I was trying to be understated, but I, did, I didn't want to um, it was say more than you wanted to. Okay. It was, uh, our, uh, it was uh, a biblical uh, experience, 2008-2009, uh, for the car business. Uh, you went from selling 17 million cars a year nationally in America to 10, and it literally happened overnight. Um, nobody says 
uh, when their stock is down 40%, I'm going to go buy myself a brand new Mercedes Benz. Um, if I'm laying off thousands of employees, that CEO doesn't say, you know, it's definitely time for a brand new car. Uh, so this was a really tough time and we were massively leveraged. We were growing like crazy and we made the decision. When I say we, uh, with my team, with my leaders, say, we're going to do the exact opposite of what every other person is doing in our shoes right now. Everybody else is figuring out how to do uh, less mm-hmm. with less. Uh, how do you trim staff? How do you get rid of support services? Cut back on marketing. Cut back on marketing. Come back on, 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 on team members. Extras. Everything. Yeah, we did the exact opposite. We doubled and tripled down on everything. We increased our marketing budget. We increased our staff. We provide. We added the number of loaner cars that we had. We uh, took our service to an, uh, another level. We invested in facilities. We spent $15 million renovating our Mercedes dealership. Uh, the day that Lehman Brothers went broke, that week we opened. And uh, it was wow, either going to— that was like a low point. Well, I figured yeah, if a- you're going to go down, you should go down in a blaze of glory, right? So uh, we we chose the path. Of, you know, it's only so dead you can be. So if you're going to be dead, be 10, ten times dead is no big deal. So what we did is during that period of time— we took the bet that the market would reward us, and it did. We actually experienced the greatest level of success in our company in 2009, 10, 11, and 12. Those were our absolute best So you years. were grabbing land during the leaner times nationally, investing, knowing hopefully America would get out of this economic downturn, and, and that proved to be true. Well, yeah, and the thesis was, well, okay, we went from $17 million to ten. But there's still 10 million cars being sold. So why don't we take our disproportionate share of that? And so when a client, it, it came down to just obvious practicality. A client would call us and have a certain level of experience. They'd call our competitors. There's nobody to talk to because they'd gotten they'd got to their staffs. Their staffs were totally demoralized. They didn't provide the level of service. So that one person that was in the market to buy a car, it wasn't like everybody went, didn't go to zero. Uh, they bought a car from us. And was it, it hard to keep morale up internally? The morale that I'm speaking so highly of about your no, business. because we were winning in a big way uh, then. So the morale, uh, the opposite also happened, which is now the death spiral happened to our competitors, and we took the upward spiral. So what happened was, well, where would you want to work? The dealership that's dying. Uh, you know, we had a, some companies were cutting away Christmas parties and 401ks. We were adding to our 401k. We were having a great Christmas party. We had did more events. Tremendous. And so we took, we were able to recruit the best of the best and build our business that way because we were able to recruit these incredibly talented people that were at other dealerships and other businesses, and uh, they wanted to be with a winning team. It's hard to believe that was more than 10 years ago. Now, with the benefit of time, reflect back a little bit. What did you learn about yourself during those moments when maybe you weren't sure, should we aggressively invest right now? Yeah, I'd say that, that the answer is indecision is your enemy. Indecision is your enemy. You have to make a decision. You have to be confident in yourself. There's certainly a fine line between conceit and convince, but you have to be absolutely convinced in what you're doing. You have to believe genuinely in your inner core that you can accomplish anything. And you have to be bold. You have to think, right? All of us have to think. Well, why not think big? Take risks. Right, right. And and calculated risk, but you you have to be willing. And that risk really is dependent on how much you believe in yourself. And you just got to get it done. And I think sometimes we underestimate the power of just persistence, just genuinely be persistent. Uh, we think that a lot of these things have to happen with brilliance. It's not. It's You have to have this, this idea that you just will not give up and you will push no matter how hard it takes to get something done. I think you were a risk taker early on. I read preparing for today that 
you wrote a letter to the chairman of General Motors when you were 14 years old? Yes. What compelled you to do that? <laughs> I didn't like the strategic moves he was doing. <laughs> so I figured As most 14-year-olds are analyzing public company strategies and <laughs> five-year plans. Exactly. I, I, I was concerned about his moves that he was making with General Motors, and I thought I had something to offer. Uh, and he so replied to you, right? He did. He did. I gave him, uh, you know, I had been studying uh, World War I in, in school. So if you remember Wilson, uh, I think it was nine points or something like that, that they came on, on how to resolve the European conflict. So I gave him as my nine points on how to fix General Motors. And at the end of the letter, I said, you know, so I'm going to go to school, I'm going to study, I'm going to work hard, and I'm going to take your job someday. And so he thought that was funny. So he replied back and he actually responded point by point and addressed each one of the issues that I had come up with. You still have the letter? Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't have the letter I sent them because, you know, again, a 14-year-old doesn't think about stuff like right. that to keep it. Pre-internet, too. There's no, there's no digital <laughs> there's copy. There's no digital of it. copy. Uh, but I do have the letter. Um, His response. My mom kept it. And uh, a few years back, uh, my wife and my uh, mom got together and they framed it for me. And I keep it in my closet. So I look at it every day when I get dressed. That's awesome. Now, you just mentioned your mother again. Speaking of your family, you came here from Columbia. Can you talk a little bit about your family? We're all born into somebody else's story. One of my mentors has taught me. Talk a little bit about what story you were born into. You know, it's a very unusual story. So my mother's family um, it has a long history of, I'd say, outsized privileged, uh, which is typical in South America. Uh, my dad's family is the same way. Uh, they Outsized privilege. I haven't heard it explained like that. What do you mean? Meaning that uh, generationally wealthy for a long time. Uh, in fact, I, I like to joke that in a lot of these developing countries, uh, the families that have wealth forgot how it is that they have so much money. Mm. Um, so that's the case. So they, they'd been there for Columbia for a while, generations back, very successful on both sides of the family. My mom was an only child, but her dad was extraordinarily successful. Uh, my dad had, was one of 11 kids and his father was extraordinarily successful, ma massive amount of some industries. My dad uh, went to the best schools, uh, got his uh, master's degree at the University of Pennsylvania in medicine. He went back to Columbia to be the dean of the medical school there at a very young age in his mid-30s. My mom, even though it was uh, the 50s, uh, uh, late 40s, early 50s, uh, came to the United States to get an education. That was something my grandfather pushed on her. And um, things were going really well financially for the family in the 60s. And uh, my dad was equivalent of what would be the Secretary of Health. There's an organization in Colombia called the Instituto de Bienestar Familiar, which is basically uh, uh, closest analogy would be the uh, sure. Department of Health. Minister of Health. Minister of Health, yeah. And uh, uh, one day my mom decides that uh, she is very disappointed in the way that she felt the family was being raised that we were, we were seven of us and that we were being raised in an entitled way. And she didn't want us to be raised that way. So she packed up 23 suitcases, seven kids, and uh, flew to Fort Lauderdale, where her mother had a, had a condo, a two-bedroom condo, by the way, and all of us lived there. And um, my dad joined us later, and he had to um, uh, get his medical license in Miami. So we, I, the real story is we basically came to the U.S. to, to have my mom show us not just tell us, show us what it was like to live the American dream, which is that you start uh, with some level of modesty, so lower middle class type life, and then it's up to you to uh, achieve wealth and not have it be given to you. So you were five then, so you weren't aware of all of your mother's thinking. Oh my God, no. <laughs> you just went because mom said we're taking this trip. Yeah, yeah. Did she tell you this thinking later or it's just learned over time and observed through this kind of family heritage 
No, uh, obs- certainly observed. There were some observations. I mean, you know, we had multiple homes in, in uh, Colombia. The house that my dad grew up in is so large that it was converted into the embassy for Germany. It's a giant home. And uh, we had farms and people, you know, you have staff. And then now we're in a two-bedroom condo. There's uh, 11 of us living in there, a two-bedroom apartment. So you do think, hmm, this is odd. Right. <laughs> right? Then we ended up buying a, a small little home in a western part, what was then the western part of Fort Lauderdale. Now it's the eastern part of Fort Lauderdale. You were educated. <laughs> so did you all already know English? No, I didn't know. Uh, in my case, I didn't know a word of English. Okay. Uh, my brothers did. I'm the youngest of seven. So my oldest brother at the time would have been probably just about to graduate from high school. So he was fluent in English. He had been born in America. He was my Three oldest siblings were born in Philadelphia where my dad was getting his master's at Penn. Um, so they spoke English. They were bilingual. Obviously, my parents were bilingual. Uh, my siblings were bilingual. But, you know, at five, you're really not even lingual. <laughs> you're still <laughs> learning the basics. Yes, exactly. So, but, uh, and that didn't deter my mom from enrolling us all in school. Now, remember, this is 1971. So if it were 2019, it would be a lot easier. Uh, but in 1971, there wasn't a, a big, compelling group of population that, that you could assimilate to that spoke Spanish in, in South Florida. So I started uh, kindergarten and um, didn't speak a word of English. So I sat in classroom all day. That's an obstacle. Wondering, uh, I got to figure out what these people are saying. So we, we had to find creative ways to learn English quickly. And Fort Lauderdale wasn't as Latino as it has become, right? It was zero Latino. It wasn't non-Latino, it was zero Latino. The small presence of, of Latin Americans existed primarily in very small pockets in Miami. Fort Lauderdale was, as we used to say, 100% WASP. Uh, there was no Latino, zero. Well, that's interesting. There's almost could be a pendulum effect. You want to quickly become Americanized and learn English but I imagine your mother wanted to hold on to some of the heritage. Like, how does heritage play out uh, then or, like, in your life today? Do your kids go back to Colombia? Does anyone speak Spanish? Or is it more about the food you eat or the faith you practice? You know, I think my mom and dad took the approach on that one. And this is maybe not not suggesting that this is right or wrong. It's just what happened in our right, family. Right, right. Uh, that we, we, when we moved to the uh, United States that we were going to become Americans. And that, that's that's what we were. Doesn't mean that we were no longer Colombians, but in terms of uh, what the way we behaved, practiced, communicated with each other, uh, thought of ourselves uh, was really that you're just you're an American. Um, so there's certainly an idea that we have relatives that live in Colombia, but if you were to say where's your allegiance, thoughts, heart, it's you know we, we view ourselves as, as we became Americans because that's why we came here. Because if we wanted to stay Colombian, we probably would have just stayed in Colombia. So, yeah, I think you're right. There's no right or wrong to that. It's just interesting how different families exactly. play out heritage. I have this special feeling when I visit the village in Lebanon where my grandparents were from. And I can't uh, say that, I don't know if I'm different now, but it definitely was like a high point in my life to do that for the first time. So now I've been returning and I want to take our kids there. But um, I think different people do it in different ways. They do. Yeah, in my, in my particular case, that was just not how we were raised. So it just doesn't even cross my mind. When I do go to Columbia, I do go there not that often, but I do. Uh, you know, my, my many billion cousins that I have that I don't know. Right. Everybody there calls you a cousin. Of course. But, uh, you know, they call me the gringo. And, and they, I think oh, they you're view, the white guy to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think we're, we're the, the American. Uh, but I think they view it as a little bit of a shot. I view it as a compliment. So I don't, They're envious. Uh, yeah, don't let them don't uh, trick you. Yeah, and again, it's not about, you know, who's better or not. I just, you know, the, the minute I could become an American citizen, I did, which is when I was 18 years old. 
Uh, you know, I think America is a really special country. Absolutely. Uh, you know, what makes this place amazing is that uh, what I saw firsthand. I mean, we got here and anybody can do anything. My dad went from uh, driving in the middle of the night to do rounds in the middle of the, uh, to get his medical license, even though he was 40 years old, master's degree, PhD, secretary of health, dean of the medical school. And yet there he is with 25-year-olds doing rounds at midnight and the only hospital that would take him under those circumstances. And he had to eat crow uh, to do that. And then later became chief, chief of staff, chief of surgery at the hospital, very prominent physician in South Florida. And I saw that firsthand. And that wasn't with because somebody handed that to him. Sure. It was because merit. Merit. And and my mom, who was uh, raising seven kids, uh, built an incredibly successful real estate practice with three offices, 100 plus associates, not because anybody handed it to her, but she worked uh, uh, like, like, like a mad woman to make that happen. So to see that, that's only possible in the United States. That's, that's not something that exists anywhere else on earth. Uh, in Colombia, you, if you're wealthy, you cannot work hard enough to become unwealthy. And if you're poor, you can't work hard enough to be wealthy. And that's that concept of the American dream is something that I'm very, very passionate about because I saw it and I saw it firsthand and lived it. You're listening to the Up To Podcast. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Adam Kaufman, and I'm thankful you're joining us today on the Up To Podcast. I want to tell you about a group that I'm grateful for, and that is Town Hall, Cleveland's most popular restaurant, and one that I can say is the only place my wife tells me she can eat every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Town Hall was the first all-non-GMO restaurant in the U.S. a few years ago, and they're now expanding into Columbus, Ohio soon. I'm also very selective about who we choose to partner with for this podcast, and it was with open arms that I embraced the idea of partnering with Bobby George and Town Hall. To learn more about what they're up to, you can visit townhallohiocity.com. One of the aspects of podcasting I enjoy the most is the ability to delve into long-form discussions without any interruption other than a periodic commentary about one of our partners. I'm grateful that Calfee, Ohio-based law firm, has agreed to partner with us. They have offices throughout Ohio and also in Washington, D.C., in New York, and Indianapolis, too. They are a full-service firm, every type of legal need. One example I'll share right now, because so many of our listeners are entrepreneurs, is not too long ago, a friend of mine sold his company to a public corporation. And with that came some restrictions and ramifications on his future employment. And to navigate through that properly, he asked my advice. And without hesitation, I recommended Calfee because I knew they'd have the right type of specialist to help him with his particular needs. And my friend continues to rave about that experience. And I'm very grateful that Calfee has agreed to partner with UpTo. So whether it's selling your own business or the more routine needs of creating your first will or anything in between, uh, this firm can really do it all in terms of legal needs. Once again, the firm is Calfee. You can find them at C-A-L-F-E-E.com or on the UpTo Foundation website. Welcome back to the UpTo Podcast with Adam Kaufman. Our guest today is Bernie Marino. I'm now concluding something about you I hadn't come to before. Your parents reinvented themselves in kind of mid-adulthood. And now recently, 
at least professionally, you've done this major pivot to essentially almost entirely, almost leave the auto industry, the retail auto business, and to delve into this new technology called blockchain. So it's, it's kind of similar. It's maybe in your DNA, this fearlessness about reinvention. And was that a hard decision for you or did you ponder it for years? No, not at all. No, not. And again, that's, that's, that's uh, 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 my mom and dad have that in common. They're not ponderers. Uh, this is, let's go, uh, you know, let's make decisions. Again, the idea that uh, you don't w- worry about making a bad decision, you just make a decision, you go and you move. I think that analysis paralysis is something that says, it holds a lot of people back. I agree with that. Why specifically blockchain? Did you look at other industries to delve into or was that for you the obvious post-retail auto choice or were you considering other industries? Yeah, let me give you 30 seconds of background. So, so You can go 35, uh, 40 seconds. <laughs> yeah, we'll keep it to that. So my youngest son and I do a lot of trips together. We uh, do a lot of uh, windshield time in the car together. And uh, we exchange what we joke around as billion-dollar ideas and threw a bunch of stuff together and you know, nothing materialized from those conversations. And one day he came home. He said, Dad, I got one word for you. And I said, plastics? And he goes, no. <laughs> and I didn't realize. He, he didn't even out. know the movie. He didn't get the movie. Right, <laughs> right. I realized, oh, he's 15. Right. Um, and uh, he said, no, Bitcoin. And uh, he started ranting about Bitcoin. Is it's going to change so? the world. And it's a currency. At 15, he exposed you to that. Oh, yeah. And it, well, that's, that's how these technologies happen. I mean, look at, look at any significant new technology right. comes from young people. So make a long story short, I got on the phone with my financial advisor at Bernstein uh, on a speakerphone, jokingly, uh, to bust his chops and my son's chops, I honestly, just to have fun with both of them, said I was going to withdraw all of my money out of Bernstein and put it into Bitcoin. And Shane Bigelow, who was the managing uh, uh, managing director of Bernstein in the Midwest at the time, said, well, please don't do that. And we were joking. And I would have just hung up, except that Shane continued the conversation and said, but you know, there's a technology that underlines Bitcoin called blockchain. It's really interesting. Uh, Bernstein studying that. Uh, there's a lot of stuff Deloitte's doing around that. I'm like, wow, Deloitte's a pretty big name. Mm-hmm. Bernstein's a pretty big name. Mm-hmm. Then I started doing research, and PwC was looking at it, and why I was looking at it. This is what year? 2015? 2015. 2014-15. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so really spent the next year or so really picking up everything I could do to understand what does this technology really mean? And then understood that there was huge applications and things that I knew about, which is the automotive business, then made the pivot sell these dealerships in a coordinated way, not in a fire sale way. Sure. And uh, then uh, started the company, ironically, with Shane Bigelow, same person, and uh, spent the last two years building out our technology, uh, privately, quietly, which is hard for me. <laughs> and uh, yeah. and uh, now we're ready to launch, and we're going to uh, revolutionize the way uh, cars are titled. And we're eliminating paper and transforming it all to digital. What's the name of that company? Champ Titles. For those who aren't really as involved in this technology yet. Do you want to take a stab at defining what is blockchain? Yeah, so blockchain is, is an underlying technology. It's basically a very, very, very sophisticated cryptographically encrypted ledger. So Cryptographically encrypted ledger. So think about any ledger you've ever seen, mm-hmm. except it's uh, hack-proof and it's immutable and it's permanent uh, and it's very efficient. The application that we all are familiar with, uh, my son was familiar with five years ago, is Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. That's just an application. One use. Uh, it's like email is to the internet, like Bitcoin is to blockchain. Right? Sure. So what we're using blockchain uh, for is to digitize uh, the car titling process, which means we eliminate the paper. 
So there's so it makes the ecosystem dramatically more efficient, reduces friction, reduces cost. Can I interrupt you? And on behalf of a grateful nation, I thank <laughs> you for that. Recently, one of our kids acquired a used vehicle from another state, and I had to go to four different government entities in person, take off time from work to do this. And it would have been so wonderful to do that from my phone, and I suspect that's what you're working on. Exactly. In fact, that's what we've completed. So imagine uh, what it used to be like when you flew, where you had to have a boarding card, and now the boarding pass is on your phone. And you get updates, gate announcements, delays, all that immediately happens. And uh, that's because that that paper is now digital. It's on your phone. And so we'll start with car titles. Uh, it's a very secure niche thing, but it's it's uh, if you think it's cumbersome for you, imagine you're a bank that holds a million car loans, mm. and now there's a lien on that car that you bought. And you have to perfect that lien from one state to the other, from one owner to the next. Huge, huge, huge burden on the ecosystem. So we fix all that. We're really excited uh, to get launched on that. Congratulations. And can we go to home titling after that? Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, a lot of people ask, that's exactly the first question people ask me. And I answer, ask obvious they, questions. They, they, that's a good one. Uh, the answer is no. Let me tell you why. Uh, there's way too many people uh, making money with the existing system. So whenever you, technology wants to replace an ecosystem, if there's money being made in that current inefficiency, it's very hard to break through to that. Yeah, politics, it, we call that sacred cows. Exactly, like, exactly. In the case of car titles, everybody's losing money with car titles. Oh, okay. Uh, so, so our system is welcomed, not fought. So we'll do cars, then we can move on to all other assets that are titled that's not real estate. Okay. Well, the state government currently is involved in the titling. So would they be outsourcing to a for-profit business like yours, some of what their union-employed bureaucrats did in the past? Would it be a problem for them to release some of those tasks? No, not at all, because what we do is our technology will sit on top of the existing system. Okay. Just making them more efficient then. So, for example, what we've asked the states to do, and we hope that Ohio, uh, and they've given us all the indication that we're, we're in good shape to do, is the state will allow, enable titles to also be digital. So we'll be the enabler of digital titles, okay. but we interact with their system and we follow all their processes. And what we hope to do is uh, create an ecosystem in Ohio around car titles that's very similar to what Delaware has around corporate registrations. We all do the LLCs in exactly. Delaware. Because it's easy and there's a lot of advantages. Mm -hmm. So we'll be massively additive uh, to the government revenue in Ohio. So imagine for them, they get lower costs, more revenue, dramatically more efficient, new jobs, new industries. So it's, it's a very, very positive thing. Sticking with technology, but moving away from blockchain for a minute, uh, can we talk about autonomy? Sure. My business partners and I, we've been doing this somewhat deep dive into that category. Do you think much about autonomy or are you totally out of the car business or are you placing any bets within your old industry as it relates to driverless vehicles? Well, there's no question that that's happening. Uh, the, the, nobody disputes that. Nobody says there's not going to be autonomous driving cars. You may not like it, whatever, et cetera, but um, uh, it's going to happen. The only debate is when. So mm -hmm. if you're Elon Musk, you're thinking this is a year or two away. Sure. If you're the chairman of the board of General Motors, you're thinking this is 20 years away. Um, and so the answer is somewhere in between, right? And what is your prediction? My prediction is probably by 2030. Yeah. And, and, and here's what level here's, five, yeah. fully autonomy. More than not. Okay. So that's the tipping point. So are there more autonomous cars or is autonomous like electric? For example, I think the tipping point on electric is probably 2023 where there's more electric cars being made that's than non-electric cars. Okay. Very, very soon. That's mm -hmm. right around the corner. Mm -hmm. So autonomous, I think that tipping point is right around 2030. 
where it came to the dealership business is that the question mark is how do dealers fit into that future? Mm -hmm. Talk I think about a sacred cow or yeah. you know, a subset of an industry. I think there's a decent chance that car dealerships can still live and thrive in that environment of the future. But the control is really around what do the manufacturers want that to be the case or not. You've mentioned GM a few times. Have you ever crossed paths with Dr. Larry Burns? No. So he was the longtime head of R&D at GM. And I, by chance, had an opportunity to sit with him for two hours. And he's from the old line Detroit thinking of auto industry future, but he was an early adopter of autonomy. So now in Silicon Valley, his book is simply called Autonomy. Mm -hmm. The race for the driverless car is like a must read for everyone out in Northern California. And he thinks that, and I know I interrupted you, I'm sorry, but maybe you could react to this because I respect his views too. He thinks that the fleets will be owned by the manufacturers and we'll just use their vehicles when we need them. Well, uh, I'll address that in a second. The question becomes, where does the car dealer fit into the equation? Right. And if the head of R&D for General Motors is saying that they're going to own the fleet and the consumers will use it, it doesn't bode well if you're a car dealer. Right, right. <laughs> right. So that's that's my point, is that the manufacturer gets to answer that question. I don't want to own a business in which somebody can make a, li a life or death decision you for my business. You can't control that, that variable. Right. Exactly. Right. So personally, I disagree with them. I think what's going to happen is that if they break the bond, I hope they don't, but if they break the bond between dealer and manufacturer, what that would do is open up a world of opportunities for other companies to step in to uh, be the alphas in that scenario. So I don't see a General Motors doing that. What I see is a company like an Uber. So whatever comes after Uber, uh, that will own the vehicles. And what they do is they'll contract out the manufacturing of that vehicle okay. to the lowest bidder. Sure. So if I, if you and I are, are the transportation providers and we need a widget that carries people from point A to point B, I'll go to Renault, I'll go to Fiat, I'll go to GM, I'll go to Ford, and I'll say to you, here's the specs that I want. Build this car for me. Mm -hmm. And it's no longer branded as a Chevy Camaro. It's branded as an Uber car. And at the end of the day, if you're using a car as transportation, you don't really care about the brand right. car. Right. You care about the brand who's providing you that service. That's what I that, that's what I think will be that's possible. That's what you think it's going, yeah. Because I have worries that the car manufacturers see the dealers as an impediment to the future. And then once that bond between dealer and manufacturer breaks, it opens up Pandora's box. And by the way, don't count out Amazon. Keep going. What do you mean by that? Meaning why isn't why Amazon becomes your provider of, of automobiles? right? Why wouldn't they? Basically think about the evolution. We're going to, Amazon will sell you a DVD. Amazon will rent you a DVD. Amazon will stream that, that movie to you. Amazon will create content. Where does that go if you're a movie studio, right? I mean, it, they've minimized the role of the movie studio to the point where they're the movie studio. So if Amazon or says- Apple we'll, destroying the music industry. Apple owning the music industry. Right, right. <laughs> Not destroying, they destroying the old one, right? Right, destroying the old one. So, so you see where the power comes. So why wouldn't Amazon Prime also be a way for you to use transportation. It's a trillion dollar company. So you got to keep in mind, the value of every car company on earth doesn't touch the value of Amazon. All of them combined. Isn't that remarkable? All of them combined. Every single, every single car company in the world, uh, at times maybe three, is the value of just Amazon. So the power is a problem. Ironically, though, just yesterday, Aramco became a $2 trillion valuation business in the old line oil industry. Yep. So who knows, these these two worlds could collide, these these old and new innovations. 
Oh, sure. I mean, it, it, we'll see where Aramco goes. I mean, one of the things that the Saudi, you know, the Saudis are incredibly smart because if, if I just said to you that I think the world changes to electric primarily in 2023 and then almost exclusively electric, not even a decade after that, you don't need oil. I mean, gasoline's gone. So maybe it's a $2 trillion company, much the way that WeWork became a $70 billion company. Mm. <laughs> and then it wasn't. Fast, fast living. <laughs> and then it wasn't. But I, I give a lot of credit for the Saudis to convince people that that company is worth $2 billion. We'll see what it's worth in 10 years. One of the things you mentioned a, a minute ago uh, that I want to uh, actually build on, you don't want to get involved in a company or an industry where the, a big variable that you can't control might affect it. I like how you are involved in political affairs. I am too. I've always been surprised that business owners... A lot of them don't care about who their elected officials are. Why do you think uh, you decided to get involved in backing candidates or lobbying for certain policies? Was that ingrained in you or is that your own thinking? Do all of your siblings uh, have that level of involvement? Well, my, my, my oldest sibling was the ambassador from Columbia to the U.S. Okay, so political uh, affairs so, is so, in your family. Yeah, my dad was a politician. He's, you know, that was a, a, a politically appointed job. Uh, we talked about politics at the breakfast table, lunch table, and dinner table 24-7. Uh, my dad would read three newspapers every single day. Uh, he would call us a dumbass if he didn't agree with our political positions. And I'm not talking about when we were 40. We're talking about when we were 10. And, uh, right around the time you were writing to the chairman of GM. <laughs> exactly. I remember being nine years old and asking and telling my dad that I thought Jimmy Carter would make a good president being scolded. Uh, were you in Florida during the Ileon Gonzalez yes, moment? of course. Because mm-hmm. yeah. that was in my own political interest development. That was a big moment yeah, there's for a, me. Absolutely. And we, so we always were taught to be lean in on community, lean in on public affairs and public policy. But at the same time, my mom was adamant that none of us ever run for political office. I was going to ask that. So uh, you, uh, that was, you, uh, yeah. you're not allowed to do that. I'm sure you've been <laughs> asked. Well, my dad, my dad literally on his deathbed asked my brother to run for president of Columbia. Uh, and, um, and my my mom ever since then has been telling him no. Um, you know, my dad wanted me to seek political office uh, when he was alive and and was another comment at, at, at literally at the end of his life. And my mom spent every waking moment uh, convincing us not to do that. The answer is, I've come to the conclusion, listen, I'm 52 years old, I'm never going to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's people who are born to be police officers, thank God. Thank God that there's people who We all have different roles. Absolutely. And and if you said to me uh, that you had to be a police officer, I would be the worst cop in the world because I, I would be frightened to death 24-7. Uh, there's people who want to be in the military who put the uniform on and God bless them times 100. And I would never, ever do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, just not built for that. Understood. And I'm also not built to be an elected official. That's that. But we do have a responsibility as good citizens to support candidates that do a good job, because if not, then we give up the right to complain about it. I agree. I actually love introducing entrepreneurs to lawmakers or candidates for the first time. And lo and behold, a few years later, that candidate's elected and that entrepreneur has some sort of need or question. And they're glad that relationship is now already in place. Right. I mean, like, I mean, we're really lucky in Ohio. We have a governor, Mike DeWine, just a genuinely great person. Uh, he's in office to do all the right things. So again, the, the type of politician we'd normally complain about, that's not him. We have a Lieutenant Governor John Houston who's absolutely making an incredible imprint. Uh, as he likes to say, he ran for office to get things done. Uh, just a genuinely good person, heart in the right place. Uh, Anthony Gonzalez, which we both uh, know and support, uh, is if we had 435 Anthony Gonzalez's, 
this country would be unbelievable. We have uh, people like Rob Portman, just absolutely class act, does a great job. Uh, Corey Gardner from Colorado, uh, Marco Rubio. We There's just a lot of really great elected officials. And so you have to support them because it's hard. You know, it, unfortunately, the system uh, does require money for advertising. Sure. for it's expensive it's process. expensive process and introducing people. Um, and, and I believe in the candidate uh, that's really important to support support these people. Yeah, them, I, I love doing that too. How about outside of politics? Do you have any role models in business, either current or growing up, that you really learned from or were inspired by anyone in your um, kind of uh, mental hall of fame or um, uplifting uh, people from your past? Well, I mean, for sure, and it sounds cliche, but certainly my mom was a big influence on the That's business That's not cliche. Side. I call my mother every day. <laughs> I do. So, uh, I mean, my mom, listen, we're, we're, uh, you commented about culture earlier. Uh, you know, we are a Latin, and the proof of being uh, Latin is the fact that my mom was an incredibly successful businesswoman. Again, 100-plus people working for her, three offices, you know, tens of millions of dollars real, real estate, estate right? sold, yeah. sold at the annual basis, top realtor in South Florida, uh, raising seven kids. And every single solitary day at 11.30, she would drive home, make my dad lunch, and sit there while he ate it. And then when he was done eating, she'd clean up, put the dishes away, Amazing. wait for him to leave, and then go back to work. So the idea that uh, she would do that and not look at it as, uh, oh, I'm feminist and blah, blah, blah. She just did her thing. And, um, and Like you and, said, we all have different roles. Exactly. We're all good at different things. Exactly. And built an incredible business worked uh, uh, like crazy and genuinely lived this idea of uh, being fearless and being um, bold her entire life. Clearly your parents influenced you. Who influences you today? Do you have any major influences in your life? Well, I lost my dad. So my dad died uh, in 2014, but my mom's still alive. And uh, so obviously still an outsized influence in my life. Uh, you know, my wife, I was fortunate to meet, uh, you know, somebody who's my best friend who also happens to be my wife. Uh, and uh, she plays a really important role in my life because, you know, one of the things, listen, I'm just going to say it because, again, I, I say it like it is, one of the challenges that you get into when you achieve success and you have people working for you and, uh, you know, uh, you have managers and team members and people telling you how great you are, it's very easy, and I've seen it with a lot of people, to let your ego um, start convincing yourself that, yeah, you're this really incredible, great person. And Ego that, that, can be blinding. It can be blinding. And it's and it's almost like a um, like a drug. And I will tell you that the one role my wife plays now, sometimes I think she overplays it. Uh, but uh, she really keeps me and our four kids massively grounded. Uh, she makes that crystal clear that... Uh, listen, you know, you're Has out of line. been talking to my wife? I think Bridget and Claire have been talking. <laughs> they overachieve, oh. overachieve it sometimes. Uh, the, the, the guy I worked for in Boston was an incredibly successful entrepreneur. Uh, but he was single most of his life. He got divorced a long, long, long time ago. And he didn't have that force. And I think it's so important. I, there's times, again, we joke that I say, well, you know, hey, calm down. But then there's other times when, thank God for her. because It you is know, needed. I think yeah. humility is something that is so important. And uh, especially when you're dealing with this uh, new generation of millennials, millennials uh, are about humility. Humility in every aspect of our lives and respecting other people, listening. And and that's this really is, my wife. Bernie, this is why you're on our podcast. If you look at that card, our theme is leaders who are as humble as they are successful. There are plenty of successful people 
that I don't invite onto this program. But I, I love your humility. I knew that about you. And I'm, I'm so glad even sharing it right now is being humble, sharing it. So thank you for that. Do you ever get stuck? You're always like on top of your game, it seems like, but you are a human being. Do you ever get stuck in anything, whether it's a, a personal pursuit, a professional project? One of the uh, exercises that I've made myself so good at that it actually has become real. Because one of the th expressions I have that I tell my people all the time is fake it till you become it. Okay. Not fake it till you make it. Fake it till you become it. Fake it until you be become it. Meaning, for example, let's say that you don't like public speaking and, it, and you're afraid of it. You just have to fake it, fake it, fake it, and then eventually you just break through and you're comfortable with it. So when it comes to... Um, what's something that you... Clearly, it wasn't public speaking. So what's something that Oh, you, my God. You didn't meet me when I was in college. I was the most shy uh, kid you've ever met in my is life. Is that so? Did I mention I'm the kid that was 14 writing a letter to General Motors? <laughs> I wasn't the cool kid at school, right? So I didn't draw that conclusion, but I see <laughs> yeah, what you're saying yeah, There now. you go. Yeah, I, I was the only uh, kid in, in, uh, in my dorm that had a People computer. People were like... Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, was, I was that kid. Uh, but... Um, so, so I say that's number one, but the, the other piece that I've done, I think that helps me is the idea that you just delete things from your brain that were negative. Mm. So like any other human had, you know, 52, my God, I can't count the negative experiences that I've had tons, tons and tons and tons, but I can't remember any of them. I deleted. Can, can you try to remember one for a moment here? I'd love to just learn how you dealt with a negative experience, maybe sure. what you learned about yourself. Yeah. I'll, I'll answer that. Just finishing that thought real quick. So deleting it to the point where it's deleted. Like I joke that my brain is now a recycle bin. When And it drives some people crazy, especially like, for example, my CEO, Shane Bigelow, of my tech company, because I'll say to him, hey, were you there yet? Were you there? He goes, seriously? I was sitting right next to you. And it's literally just deleted. Mm. You have to, because I think it's important to look to, the, you can't change the past. That's even more effective than compartmentalizing. People talk about compartmentalizing. No, it's it's not even on your- It's gone. Because you know what happens? You cannot live in yesterday. You have to you have to live in the future. So this idea that you are constantly reliving, oh, I should have done this, I should have done that, I should have done that, I should have that. There's only so much brain capacity that we have. So my brain capacity, I focus on today and the future, and not dwelling on the past. But to answer your question, uh, I, can, I can give you a few that I have only recalled because people do ask me that question. Uh, the the biggest one is probably May 9th, two thousand five. I landed in Cleveland. I had wired every dollar I needed to close on that deal. So every dollar I've ever seen is now gone. This is buying a Mercedes dealership. Buying a Mercedes dealership. For those of you who know what, what money being hard means, means it's never coming back. Like if you if you don't close a deal, you lose all your money. So every all dollar gone. In. May 9th, all gone. All the money's gone. But I still need uh, a $950,000 loan uh, from a bank to complete the deal. And the loan was coming from Charter One Citizens Bank. And uh, on May uh, 11th, 2012, the representative from Citizens comes to see me, white as a ghost, to tell me that the loan was not signed off on by two people, just one and not two. I'm like, well, that's interesting. Okay, what does that mean? Well, he really finally had to explain it to me like a two-year-old to explain to me, you are not getting the loan, mm. which means I can't close, which means all my money's gone and I have no dealership. 24 hours before closing. This was over the phone or in person? In person, yeah. How yeah. did you react? Oh, I mean, basically what he's, in retrospect, here's what he's saying to me. You're financially ruined. <laughs> mm. Mm -hmm. you've, moved, you've moved your family to a city where you have no business. And you were like 33 then or 38. something? Yeah, 38. Young. And, uh, well, I gave up a job. I burnt a bridge in Boston, gave up this big job, and it's done. You're, you're literally 
Done. And uh, so, so what did we do? Do we play the lotto or? <laughs> Rob the bank. No, no. I called the chairman of the board of uh, Citizens Bank. Again, reflecting back to the 14-year-old writing to the GM right. called, chairman. Called Larry Fish and uh, said to Larry, I said, listen, it's 24 hours before closing doesn't seem like an appropriate time to tell me the loan's not going to be done. Seems like maybe that conversation should have happened a month ago, uh, which would have given me the fairness that I I would expect. And you were that diplomatic that about it? Yeah, just like this. And uh, and he listened. He said, let me check into it. Obviously, he's the chairman of the board. doesn't know. Right. Two hours later, the guy, same guy came back and said, you're all set. I said, what happened? He said, Larry Fish signed the loan document himself. Tremendous. Have you remained in touch with him or has he followed your rise? We did for a while. Then he, he retired from, from Citizens uh, a few years back. But those are those moments in life where you can uh, cry, suck your thumb, sit in a corner, feel sorry for yourself. Doesn't move the ball forward, does it? And sometimes you just have to uh, uh, plow through those situations and uh, uh, re- remember that it's that persistence, belief in yourself. And to, hey, listen, citizens got paid every cent I owed. Sure. I borrowed from them and right. then some. It was a great deal for them, great deal for me. And it worked. You have to have that confidence and a belief that you can do anything. Well, it's been a great deal for us to have you here today, Bernie. You were kind enough to come to one of the first Live Up To events we had about 10 years ago. I don't know if you remember that, but I, I was thrilled to have you as a featured guest uh, during that live event. And now here we are several years later uh, talking about new things and a little bit older. You look the same. I'm bald now. but um, <laughs> I thought you were always bald. See, I re- deleted it. <laughs> Your system works. I'm grateful for that. I don't that. remember you with hair. <laughs> you don't remember the mullet. <laughs> no. But seriously, uh, your time is very valuable and I take that seriously. So thanks for being uh, with us at Up To today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. This conversation with Bernie was terrific. There are several points which uh, stand out to me. And actually, I'm going to share some that I agree with, but also some that maybe could be challenged, but nonetheless were strong points that our guests today made. Number one, indecision is your enemy. Believe in yourself. Number two, don't underestimate the power of persistence. Push to get things done. Number three, Bernie said, fake it until you become it. Number four, leaders often lack honest feedback or constructive criticism. A spouse or a family member can be a healthy and necessary resource providing that feedback, and we should be open to that. And number five, plow through tough times. Have confidence in yourself. Five strong points made today by our accomplished guest, Let me know what you think, if you challenge any of these thoughts or you agree with them. And now it's time for this week's listener mailbag. Today's letter comes to us from Beth. She writes, I already was a Baker Mayfield fan, but I like him even more now that I was able to listen to him on up to. You were able to bring out a more self-reflective side of him we don't get to see when he's being interviewed after football games. And I think it was great to also hear from his wife, Emily, too. I really got the sense that they felt safe talking with you. Thanks, Beth. And please keep the feedback coming. Up To is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thanks to our producer and audio engineer, Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Adam Kaufman, and thank you so much for listening to the Up To podcast. <laughs>